So hi everyone and welcome to Architecture in the Den. Uh, this week we are talking to Simeon um, about healthy homes. Um, so would you like to introduce yourself? Hi everyone, thank you Lisa for having me. Um, my name is Yusuf Sabunayev and I am a doctoral researcher in urban planning at Birmingham City University and as of today, a senior lecturer there as well for a year. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> what are you lecturing in? Um, so I am looking at the planning side, although my background is in architecture and town planning, mm -hmm. um, and I'm going to be kind of trying to make the link between town planning, design and architecture. So hopefully um, looking at topics like professionalism, uh, how you actually engage in the design um, and built environment as a planner in a bit more of an active way. So influencing future planners. Yes. That sounds awesome. So are you responsible for any year groups in architecture? Um, they're all town planners, but I am teaching town planning to some of the architects. So this is another interesting overlap there mm. as well. <laughs> Yo, How yes. does that work? That sounds cool. Um, it is interesting. I think it doesn't necessarily get the attention it should usually deserve, but mm -hmm. I think it's quite essential, especially now. And, you know, my discussion will probably touch on a lot on that regulation policy space. Mm. Mm, interesting. So, um, yeah, I sort of see from your bio, um, you were served as a trustee of the RIBA between 2016 and 2019. I think our terms crossed. Yes, they did. They did very much. And, uh, you know, for which I do apologise. <laughs> <laughs> and you were there as a vice president for students and associates. Yes, um, I shared that role for a year with um, Celeste Situfin. Mm -hmm. And you co-founded the RIBA Future Architects Initiative. Yes, which is kind of linking to the topic today as well. I think in my work, the idea of how younger people, younger professionals are being accepted both in society and in the profession mm. um, was really, is really important. And obviously the Future Architects is trying to do that, is trying to bring early career professionals um, to the RIBA and also the RIBA to them and try and kind of engage in a, in a more targeted and meaningful manner rather than you know just being in the background so what sort of programs is it offering at the moment so last week we had a no, two weeks ago we had a meetup um which was exactly look, looking at the way ahead which is the new sort of education and um, continuous professional development plan of the RIBA and trying to see what um part ones and part twos have uh, in mind and how they kind of mm. accept that document uh, but it offers a wide range of things so there are meetups where you can actually meet some of the peers and you know kind of engage with people across the world actually um, and there's also a lot of resources on the website um, at the RIBA at architecture.com um, where you can either feature your blog feature your work get some uh, support in business skills um, and kind of filling those gaps that education kind of architectural education at the moment does it necessarily cover, if that mm. makes sense? Yeah. yeah. So I, I know that there's um, sort of young architects listening in and uh, some architectural students. So how would they access this information and this support? If they're students, the easiest thing is just to kind of get an RIBA membership, which is free for everybody yeah. up to um, after graduating from part two from their master's. Um, and then afterwards, if you are a part to graduate, you can become an associate or kind of, you know, once you charter a early charter member. But the moment you're a student or associate member, 
you're automatically within the future architects, like you're a member of the future architects, basically. So all the resources um, will either be sent to you um, because you're on the subscription link, or you can go on the website page and just engage there. Mm. This is pretty easy. And, and then um, it's easy for future architects to start engaging with the RIBA as well as just downloading yeah. resource. Yes, and I think the idea of the of the sort of the network or the kind of the initiative is that it's not just about providing a service to future architects, but actually yeah. listening to that demographic and trying to understand what you know what the, the, the relevant issues are because that's the kind of that's the you know the demographic that actually knows what's going on <laughs> in what's coming up. Yeah. Very true. Very true. And then I also served as a member of the RTPI. General Assembly. Yes, which is a completely different experience to the <laughs> RABA, I must say. Um, yeah, my background, my master's was in architecture and town planning, um, and this is kind of where it's led me to my research. Um, but that interdisciplinary link for me is really important. And Can I just stop yeah. there and just, just in case there's any international listeners li listening, you know, um, shall we, do you want to just explain what the RIBA is and what the RTPI is? Good point. Um, <laughs> well, they're such well-known international brands. <laughs> but yeah, so the RIBA is the Royal Institute of British Architects uh, and RTPI is the Royal Town Planning Institute. So they're basically the professional bodies for architects or town planners. Um, and I have the kind of situation where I'm stuck in between the two, <laughs> trying to pick pick a site, but you know, I'll just continue with both. Um, how, how did you get involved in the planning? Did you do um, an urban design? So oh, my master's was a dual one. Um, it was a architecture and town planning master's. Um, oh. So at the end I got uh, both RIBA and RTPI qualification. Wow. It was in the same time as a normal RIBA master's, so it was intense. <laughs> what course was that? Where? It's in the University of Sheffield. Yeah, yeah, it's available. It's um, On the course was me and another girl. So that can tell you how many people wanted to take <laughs> it up. Um, yeah, but it was really useful. And it's just, it gives you that extra look into the different side of mm. the built environment, um, mm. the town planning side. And it's just... Um, it's it's a similar similar set of issues, very different approach of how you actually solve them. So right. it's really interesting. I know. I I think I started looking at doing an urban planning, urban design masters, but I think I just had my first child, and I was like, oh, let's let's have a look at some another course. And I just the thought of going back to study at that point was like, no. Well, you will be happy to find out that they're both apprenticeships in planning but also part-time courses mm. and honestly the planning i think you can take a master's which is a year and mm. then you can get an rtpi um qualified degree so it is you know ever you find yourself with some free time <laughs> <laughs> i want to scratch that urban design kind of it. exactly yeah <laughs> brilliant um, so let's um, talk, we go back to the topic of healthy homes. So um, I think you were telling me earlier that you, you did some research with um, some 18 to 30 year olds. Yes. So my kind of 
interest in, in um, who engages with the urban environment tended to narrow down to the youth or kind of young people um, category. And that is very diverse, but I use the Commonwealth definition, which is um, 18 to 30 year olds. And um, what happened is that I got some funding from the Academy of Urbanism to do a bit of a research, which was supposed to take place outside, um, interviewing a lot of young people, passing by different developments in a very interactive manner. And then COVID happened. Uh, so I had to redesign that research. And um, I basically ran um, a survey over May 2020. So that was in, in mm. kind of the height of the pandemic. Yeah. Um, which was focusing around Birmingham and how people were in that age range were experiencing the hot lockdown and what were the main issues that were coming up. And I think the main reason for looking at that kind of age range was that the average house buyer in the UK is around 32, 33 year olds. So these are the future um, house buyers. You know, these are the people that their experience now is going to define what they're looking for mm. later on. Um, so for me, it was really interesting to see what's coming up as a priority for them after they've experienced this very intense relationship with their living environment right now. So how did you actually conduct the survey? So I was using a um, GDPR approved <laughs> survey uh, tool, which is just called online surveys. It's a, mm. it's a sort of um, online uh, tool that kind of universities prefer to use because it can pass all that um, data protection acts. Um, and in the survey itself, there were around um, 30 questions and some of the bits that I tested people on were planning applications, which has just would have just been put in after lockdown. So there were different developments across Birmingham, um, housing development, which still kind of maybe, you know, tended to associate themselves with designs pre-pandemic, but they were very much being approved, you know, digitally um, and will be built after the pandemic um, kind of has already started. So I thought for me, it was really interesting to see what people think about that type of um, housing developments now after they've, you know, they've really had to live in a box for a while. <laughs> interesting. I, 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 for some reason, I'm stuck on the mechanics of the survey. So how did you, um, so how did you pull the people? Where did they come from? So I have the great benefit of actually being in that age range. <laughs> so uh, okay, yeah. I, um, I obviously used some of my networks, but the main distribution strategy was either through professional bodies uh, or through sort of local youth organizations and obviously social media. Um, so at the end, we ha I had around 52 people that responded, okay. um, of which one person did not live in Birmingham, which was, you know, disappointing. Um, but yeah, which for a month of the height of the pandemic, I thought was okay, <laughs> you know. Um, but the, yeah, the survey itself was was seen by a 1,200 people. Mm -hmm. So you could tell you could tell how many people actually saw it, and then how many people actually went to the final page of answers. That's very interesting. People, so 1,200 people saw it and then to... And then I had around, yeah. responses. And I had around 100 people probably kind of stuck on one of the pages where, you know, you've probably done research yourself um, yeah. or answered the surveys. You kind of just go, no. I need to go boil the, boil <laughs> no. the kettle. Yeah. 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 So what sorts of questions were you asking? What sort of results did you get? So I think some of the surprising bit, there were three parts of the survey. One was looking at how young people um, 
what the perceptions of housing and the city have changed in, in lockdown. The other one was the direct experience. And then the uh, final section was about sort of the future city. I think one of the most interesting things, I'm just looking at them um, right now. One of the <laughs> most interesting things for me personally was that a lot of people said that their housing conditions at the moment were suitable or somewhat suitable. That was the majority, like 90% of people said that. But then when you actually probed further and said, what are the main challenges that you have faced while staying at home? Um, maintaining physical and mental health came up as the top one. Um, 25 people out of the 50 people said that that was really hard for them to do. Um, ability to work from home was mm -hmm. a major issue, like st space to study, concentration. Um, then we had a lot of people saying that lack of suitable external space was a major issue for them. Um, and then lack of suitable indoor conditions. So damp storage, um, storage um, air quality, noise quality, and that sort of um, kind of, you know, that, that type of issues um, was the, the fourth kind of most um, reported cause. And I think the final one was something that, I don't know if you've experienced, but I definitely experienced my partner. Uh, and that was sort of strained social relationships. Mm. people they live with um just the inability to have private space um which i thought was really interesting because we don't tend to think about that um maybe on a day-to-day -day basis but actually if you spend a lot of time all of us have experienced that now mm. the ability just to close the door and not be you know <laughs> in the same space as the other person who mm. lives with you. that's very true so it was i mean it was quite interesting to see because later on, um, obviously asked the, about in light of COVID, what would be the three most important criteria for a future purpose, uh, purchase in accommodation, either for um, actually in a loan or to rent. And around 70% said access to suitable garden or balcony mm. was a major, um, major sort of factor that would make them decide that they want to move to something else. Mm. just to mm. another location um and then obviously size and condition of the property were were the next ones mm. Mm. i mean going back to the kind of group who participated i mean it's a very self-selecting group with you know by the fact they're doing an online survey you know yeah. they have access to broadband yeah so, so this is <laughs> question i mean honestly well i don't know necessarily because some people might have done over a mobile internet connection mm. um but yeah you're right um Mo i asked the question at the end about sort of understanding who actually replied um and a good half of the people that replied either worked or studied or had some relationship with the built environment mm. um so they presumably obviously that's a reflection of the sort of distribution method as well mm. um but I was looking afterwards at the um, Green Count, the um, World Green Building Council, uh, the sort of their campaign about healthier homes, and some of the similar issues were kind of popping up there. Um, issues such as you know air quality inside, um, just the idea of thermal and acoustic comfort and the space for privacy, and their campaign started in 2014. So <laughs> these were issues that. Um, and on you, mm -hmm. but I think definitely at the forefront now in people's minds because obviously our relationship with the homes changed completely. Mm, so what? So taking this forward, what do you think as architects and urban designers we need to design for? Um, 
one of my key pet peeves is the lack of external space. Mm. I think in, and I don't necessarily think that this is something um, which, you know, could be justified even with the weather because, you know, everybody has a garden uh, or traditional housing has gardens or some sort of external space. So actually just saying, oh, we're going to build a um, 10 story housing development and actually, you know, nobody would want like uh, external space because it's raining or because the weather in the UK is not great. Um, I don't think that's a relevant argument, although that's what I hear a lot. Mm. Um, I think legislation needs to support that. Um, you know, the London um, Guide for Homes and uh, sort of the 2000, I think 2007 publication isn't actually quite old now. Um, that kind of mandated new development to have some sort of external space. Uh, but in a lot of local authorities, those housing standards don't reflect that necessarily in terms of actual requirement. It's quite often just a recommendation. Mm -hmm. um, and I mean, in Birmingham, we have a proliferation of housing at the moment in the city. It's um, really, a, it's just a lot of housing units are coming up on the market and being developed and almost none of them have some external space, which yeah. is really counterintuitive to what actually people are facing right now. Yeah, I mean, the only way that you can, it's got to come through legislation. Yeah, because, you know, when you're talking about developing properties, developers aren't going to design to, to design and build to aspirational standards. They're, they're going to design to legislation. Yeah, and I think, I mean, yes, it should be legislation kind of overarching or that should be mm. the end goal mm. but I think the market is going to start demanding that um, because people will you know prefer to buy the, the the homes that have some access to external space whether it's you know shared external space or private and um, if you know developers are smart enough and there are plenty of smart developers out there oh, yeah they will you know start providing this where it's feasible and where it's um, easy to do. I don't know, that could be just a balcony in some developments. It doesn't mm. have to be a full-blown, you know, access to a roof garden or whatever. Um, and I'm thinking here in city city living where, you know, obviously high rises and sort of more dense developments come up. Um, I think obviously in historic housing stock, that's kind of a given. There's mm. always some sort of a garden there. And uh, interesting, we sort of going back onto the social spaces where you can rooms to kind of um, shut the door on were quite important. I mean, um, what you see happening with the trend of open plan um, housing, so open plan living? I had this discussion with somebody and it was connected with open plan offices, but I think it's a similar situation with open plan living that you, you know, especially in situations where you might be a couple or you know you might be uh, housemates which obviously live together because of the rent con uh, situation or that's more um, kind of effective um, but being there all the time and specifically being in your home to work mm. um, causes a lot of issues with open plan and we really it would be another design condition that you have to think about one you know when you have a client and um, maybe noise uh, or sort of acoustics are going to become more of a um, consideration in smaller scale developments as well mm. uh, rather than just in sort of large scale developments mm. but so. I think what yeah one of the things which I thought about on that point was a lot of people reported anxiety going outside of their home as well um, which I thought was really interesting because that lack of private space inside and lack of private space outside kind of maybe became um, you know 
has bubbled up. Um, but social anxiety was one of the top issues that people said um, they experience in the urban realm when they go outside. That's interesting. So how, how can we deal with social anxiety externally? Um, one thing which is obviously very popular right now is that 15 minute neighborhood, isn't it? The idea of um, the Paris sort of municipality idea of having all of your services 15 minutes away from where you live. Um, this is currently you know, being picked up by a lot of municipalities and a lot of local authorities across the world. And I think you know, places like the World Economic Forum love to kind of pick ideas um, and push them out. That might be one way if you strengthen that neighborhood connection rather than just strengthen the citywide connection. Mm. Um, but I honestly think somebody summed it up, um, buildings with kindness, somebody actually said, you know, kind of that was the um, idea of what they can see in the future. And I think the idea of empathy in the production of cities and actually how you, you build buildings that consider your need on a day-to-day -day basis, you know, maybe um, it has more greenery, maybe it has somewhere for you to sit down, maybe it has those, you know, layers of privacy, layers of sort of um, disengagement or engagement with the public realm, uh, but, you know, in a safe or socially distanced and physically distanced way. Um, but just thinking about that more when you design rather than um, kind of looking at the measurements and dimensions and sort of thinking, you know, that's, mm -hmm. that's what we need to deliver. Um, I thought it was really interesting. And I, I see this in coming up with the Gen Z, uh, you know, the teenagers that I kind of do my primary research with, a lot of them talk about community and kindness and that feeling of um, cohesion within your city, um, which is missing at the moment and something that they would like to see in the future, um, which is interesting because I asked them about technology and smart cities. So, you know, the answer is completely different. It's a lot more humanistic and um, it's something which a lot of people do not feel art or kind of do not um, they don't see reflected where they live. They don't feel part mm -hmm. of that community. So actually um, breaking that down on small levels, creating those opportunities for social interaction, obviously in a different way to what maybe we've done before. Mm -hmm. um, parklets, little, you know, basically little community hubs um, of any kind that could, could strengthen those connections would be my bet. So sort of um, reintroduction of villages. <laughs> Almost, yeah, well, this is the kind of the core of the 15 uh, minute city, isn't it? Uh, the idea mm -hmm. that the city's combination of villages, which logistically and sort of economically, I think has some challenges, but yeah, on a social level for me, that makes sense, mm. um, having, having those communities. So what, what, what is the future role of the city then? If we're all kind of, having our we're decentralizing yeah i mean this is real question that i've been tackling in my phds in future cities mm. and how we kind of um imagined it or how we planned them or how we kind of um, decide why you know these type of people have access or, or should should be able to, to to do whatever they do in the city um i think the lack of or the the idea about smaller um, social environment or social physical environment would have to come as well tied in with the idea of climate and environment. Um, and I think this is one of the major issues that um, will have to define um, how we, you know, what the city is for. 
um, we can't lose those big clusters of um, a lot of activity, which you know why cities are so successful. Mm. But we create almost that next layer of um, smaller clusters that will still work on a diff on a different level rather than the economic level, on a social and sort of environmental <laughs> level. So what? So when you talk about a smaller cluster, what um, what scale are we talking about? Um, the neighborhood scale is something that yeah, I it just miss is missing at the moment. I think in planning, it, it, obviously we have neighborhood planning, and that's been really successful in some areas. But usually that has been successful in already um, good and sort of successful. Yeah, mm. it's it, it's worked in other places. Well, where there's been an established one, it has worked really really well. So actually being a proactive, um, either local authority proactive, active proactive, you know, sort of um, designer looking at that neighborhood level and trying to, in your design, to initiate that conversation between that neighborhood community is, I think for me, is quite key. Um, mm -hmm. And where we should be targeting it. And again, it doesn't have to be economic. It doesn't have to be that all the jobs for the people that live in that neighborhood are within this, you know, mm. cluster. but all the social activities, all the sort of, um, that small scale interaction should be kind of concentrated there at least. So mm. you, you develop that um, mental well-being um, element. Mm. Mm. So um, so bringing it back down in scale onto, um, onto the homes, I mean, it, what can we do as um, architects and designers to kind of increase that sense of com of uh, community and neighborhood i mean i know from my point of view kind of always um sort of try on your principal elevations having sort of overlooking onto streets and um you know actually occupying rooms on the front of the house with whether it's a kitchen or uh, an office so that you can actually see what's going on I know um, I'm in my front room, I'm in a 1930s semi and I've got the front room with the bay window and that when that, <laughs> the blinds go up so I can see what's going on and I'm the, always the first one to open the door, <laughs> get the, the parcel deliveries, whatever, but you know, you can see what's going on in the street. Yeah. So it's, it's about I, you know, I think it's about having that engagement and encouraging those that engagement. Yeah, I, I, I think, I mean, obviously we're having a climate in the UK that is getting a bit warmer. <laughs> that, you know, <laughs> that's, the, that's the trend. We also have a real good understanding now of um, trans, active transport and how active transport can benefit everybody in the community. Um, and then um, one thing I was going to mention is that Healthy Homes um, Act campaign by the TCPA, the Town and Country Planning Association, mm -hmm. which was looking at how healthy, um, how homes have to be designed in a healthy manner. So if you think about these three things, um, kind of well-being, change in, in sort of long-term change in temperature, long-term change of sort of climate conditions, and then um, our idea of entry. Uh, encouraging active travel i think the design would have to start to change um on the street level you know as you say facing the street maybe you no longer prioritize a car park space mm. in front of the house or in front you know maybe you don't prioritize um maybe you look at sort of um buildings that you know, as you say may have more overlooking but also um the idea of being the, the outside being an extension of the inside and then um, making sure that um, 
you can you can choose both almost so it's not you don't have to be contained within that uh, but that semi-private space between the public and your home i think would have to be rethought almost those con you know conservatories but you know at the front um, the other way I yeah, it, it's that you know you'd kind of want to the ideal situation would be to put kind of playgrounds or you know play equipment at the front of the house and then look out onto the front but then you know people want to protect kids and from from external factors so there's always going to be that that challenge it's kind of like the safety versus the community yeah, I mean, those mini community infrastructures, like the development that got the Sterling Prize, um, I can't remember exactly the name right now, um, but down in Norfolk, that uh, those houses were all facing um, that's the same street that was protected and surrounded and had, mm -hmm. as you say, playgrounds, different opportunities for people to engage with their neighbors. Um, so just thinking a bit more about, is do we have to have that street as a street or do we have to, um rethink how this works um where i live nearby there is a street full of sort of immigrant families but they close the street every month before now no but before they used to close every mm -hmm. month and just had a party um mm -hmm. of the weekend and it was really good to see mm -hmm. and um reintroducing that would um, i know i think we started to have street parties um it's kind of like around all the royal occasions yes maybe and can you apply? Well, you used to be able to apply for a license to shut. Yes, you can. You can still do that. That's how they do it. Yeah. Mm. They're a really good organization, the Big Lunch, uh, which does that on an internet, on a national level. The Big? Big Lunch, I think it's called. And that interact in, um, encourages people to close their local street and in, kind of set up a big lunch for everybody, basically. Cool. Right. Well, we've come to the end of the session. So I. <laughs> That, that was very so quick. quickly. <laughs> Thank you very much, Simeon, for coming and talking to us. Um, so um, next week on Architecture in the Den, we, we're talking about pandemic architecture opportunities with recruiter Stephen Drew. Uh, he's running the Architecture Social website, which is a really good platform for students uh, and young architects as well. So we've got that on Monday. Um, if you've liked this podcast um, or YouTube video, please subscribe, like, share um, to either. And um, I'm also um, embracing Clubhouse, um, the new kind of iPhone app. So uh, look, uh, look for me, Lisa Rains on it. Um, I've started uh, Constructive Together. Uh, a networking, a construction networking um, group on Monday mornings at nine o'clock. So <laughs> all the platforms. All the platforms, but it's all good. Platforms. Yeah. Well, uh, this is one thing that's come out of lockdown. It's just, you know, um, getting involved, using social media, yeah. you know, and, and so this podcast has come out of, uh, of, of lockdown so i'm really enjoying it maybe we didn't talk about that but i really enjoyed the sort of the transfer of information that's happened around um, the lockdown because you have access to people that you would never have had access to yes and for me this has been really enlightening and just the Absolutely. ideas that you see yeah um yeah well we would have met, we would have had to have wait waited to meet up in real life to have this conversation yes 
we would exactly. have had to have met for the conversation in the first place to set this up and then met again to actually ha have the conversation it's like yeah why would you, why would you anymore <laughs> yeah why would you no that's great anyway thank you very much for coming on thank you okay and uh hopefully see everyone uh next week <laughs> <laughs>